This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. set its target IPO valuation, and it's kind of a wait-what moment as the number comes in far below its last funding round. Michelle Davis is with us. She's finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Bloomberg News startup reporter Eric Newcomer. So, Michelle, let's start with you. Let's do the numbers, right? This is below, what, their latest funding round? Yeah, it's uh, more than half below what it was uh, when they last raised money uh, earlier this 50% year. percent below. Right. Um, And so, you know, a lot of things have happened since SoftBank uh, put money in the company. Uh, Not only did we have some IPOs flop, but also we got WeWork's prospectus um, or, you know, their IPO papers last month. And uh, investors had some questions about, you know, corporate governance, also just money going out of the company, that sort of thing. And so these are some things that have caused, you know, valuation to change. So, Eric, come on in here, because I feel like this prospectus, and Michelle alluded to this, was, you know, we're all, especially here around Bloomberg, we all love digging into the prospecti, is that what (laughs) I should call them? Um, And you guys more than anyone. But this was one, I mean, just reading Shira Ovide's tweets about it alone, your great reporting and others, this was a different sort of thing. It sort of raised the game in terms of no, it's amazing. I mockery mean, and confusion. I, I think the, the main thing that's stunning is that sort of year after year, WeWork's revenue and losses basically amount to the same number. So it'll be something like a $1.8 billion revenue, and then the losses are like $1.6. You know, you hope the costs and the revenue line up so maybe you're breaking even. You know, this is a case where the losses are so large – that they're competing with the revenue. So it's, it's just a company that relative to the size of the revenue loses a ton of money, even compared to Uber. I just have to say, if I'm an investor and I've just seen a 50% cut in the valuation expectations and there's all these concerns that you and others are reporting about this company, I mean, do I even want a piece of this? You know, I think it's a similar in some ways to the Uber situation where you had the $120 billion yeah. valuation floated and that didn't really anchor the final... Number now here it's somewhat different because WeWork had actually raised at that number, whereas Uber had, had down rounds, and so there are different situations. But to some degree, you know, the the market, you know, uh, for these IPOs is sort of showing that these imagined valuations don't always hold. But Beyond up. Meat is up more than five hundred percent. Just going to put that out there. Uh, but Michelle, you know, one of the things that also strikes me about this is it's one thing to sort of be out in the private market and raising money and you're telling a story and you're essentially behind closed doors with a small group of, in many cases, like true believers. But then you go out to sort of the wider world of Wall Street and sort of marketing this and you get a bit of a reality check from your bankers who are working for you, but at the same time, they've got to be realistic about what investors will ultimately pay. Right. And in, in WeWork's case in particular, you know, the banks do have, you know, a, maybe more arguably more at stake because they have offered the company, uh, you know, credit facility right. that hinges on uh, WeWork actually raising, you know, $3.5 billion in the IPO. Um, 
and I guess something else that's just been striking in this whole process is that, you know, with Uber, there were there are always bulls, but what seems to be happening with WeWork is that like no there don't seem to be any believers like everyone's been so quick to just say like oh this is a joke that sort of thing but you know the company still is uh, going forward with an IPO so someone is believing and Eric what's different I mean it feels like we know fundamentally that something is different at least tonally about WeWork you know whether it's Adam Newman sort of I don't know if I should call them shenanigans, but like, you know, this idea, like he's definitely taking a different tack. I mean, there's another great story by Jillian Tan uh, on the uh, on the Bloomberg. And it's a fun headline that said he's stoked about basically like Wells Fargo kind of given given him an attaboy. The tone of this doesn't feel very 2019 in, in some ways. Well, you know, my colleague, Ellen Hewitt, wrote this profile of him. Yes. And this this I don't think she necessarily said this explicitly, but you know, to me, sort of sounds like a cult figure in this story. And definitely the amount he's, you know, the company is so oriented around him. He has such control, the incentives that he has, what, you know, the, that in the prospectus he was getting paid for the renaming of the company. There are just so many things about how he carries himself and his relationships with the company that, that he is this sort of very intriguing figure that seems, you know, Uber had Travis Kalanick who tried to take control but then of course by the time they were going public they had, Dara. they had one share one vote we've reformed so people think oh Uber it's that crazy company but WeWork's really the 2016 Uber that still had the powerful founder and That's a great much comparison. less scrutiny sort of on WeWork as a private company. Than Have, having said that, I mean, it's been a stronger IPO market, right, than we've seen in some time. Are investors clamoring for anything new? You follow the startup universe that, you know, will still there be interest in this potentially? I mean, they're starting their roadshow next week. Just got about 20 seconds. You know, it, at a price. I think that's always the thing that yeah. there's, there's a belief that they're transforming a market and there are people who you know invest and say you know there are lots of naysayers for Facebook, Google, mm-hmm. and we understand something you don't. SoftBank's been very successful in finding some of these companies, so it's just a matter of getting to the right price. All right, great stuff, Eric Newcomer, startup reporter for Bloomberg, Michelle Davis, finance reporter for Bloomberg. A great co- collaboration helping us understand what's going on as WeWork marches toward an IPO. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Coming up, we're going to hear from Kevin Johnson, the CEO of Starbucks. That stock is not trading up today for the second day in a row. It is down largely on that outlook right now, trading down about eight-tenths of 1%. Yeah, and what's interesting is Starbucks, Kevin Johnson, the CEO, has some ideas when it comes to the future of the company. He's been CEO for just about two years, a little bit more than that. So it'll be interesting to see what he has to say about what is to come from Starbucks. Let's uh, turn things over to David Weston of Bloomberg TV and Kevin Johnson of Starbucks. Well, David, welcome to Chicago. Yeah, well, it's quite a shindig you're throwing here. So explain us why we're here with 12,000 of your favorite well, people. this is the largest store manager meeting that Starbucks has ever hosted. And it's a leadership experience with 12,000 store managers from uh, throughout the United States and Canada. It's an opportunity for us to connect with our store managers, to inspire each other, and to get ready for this next chapter of our journey. So if this all goes perfectly, which we hope it will, what do you accomplish? How does it change Starbucks, what you do in these next three days? Well, 
you think about it, we've, we're now 31,000 stores around the world, and the, the Starbucks experience we create in each and every one of those stores is created by our Starbucks partners who proudly wear the green apron. The store managers we have here at this leadership experience, they, they are the leaders of, the, of those partners and the leaders of those stores. So in many ways, the most important role in the company is the store manager. And so to be able to spend two or three days with 12,000 wonderful store managers who lead our business is a privilege and an honor. You started out with a letter to everybody gathered here and it had five points to it. One of them was empower store managers. That's right. When you empower those store managers, what will that mean to those of us who go to Starbucks? How will we see that? How will it differ our experience? Well, you know, each store that we have is, is a part of a community and there's unique attributes in that community. You know, certainly they all bring the Starbucks experience to life. We've got our, our beverage innovation, the food that we, we create, and, and, and partners who, you know, practice their craft and create handcrafted beverages for each and every customer. But in each store, we want to make sure store managers are also empowered to do the unique little things that they need to do to make sure that store plays a relevant role in the community that they serve. One of the things that we hear about is automation. You're going to think about the process within the store when you go in. That frees some time up. Does that mean you have fewer people working there, or do they do different things with their time? Yeah, actually what we're doing is simplifying the work that our partners in the store have to, have to do. And a lot of ways we're automating administrative tasks so partners can spend more time with customers. So this is, you know, this is this is not about driving efficiencies. It's about focusing more of our time, connecting with customers, and serving them. And you know, we started this, uh, I don't know, about a year ago, and thus far our customer connection scores now are at an all-time high. Uh, in a sense, you are in the retail business. You're dealing with customers across the country and in China and around the world. Uh, we hear a lot about experiential. Uh, retail. It's not just we're going to buy something, we go into an experience. How does that apply to Starbucks? Well, you know, experiential retail says you do something unique to create a customer experience so that that store becomes a destination. And for us, you know, we create a warm, welcoming environment, we create comfortable seating, but the most important ingredient is our partners. It's our partners who proudly wear the green apron that connect with customers. It's our partners who handcraft each and every beverage personalized to that customer's preference. And it's creating a, an environment in the community where people can connect and be a part uh, you know, of the neighborhood and of their community that they're part of. That is the experience we create in our stores. Another point in your letter is sustainability. You want to be a leader in sustainability. Let's talk about uh, the plight of coffee farmers right now, because mm -hmm. the coffee prices are really low. You've got a lot of people in Peru and other places in Latin America who are having a hard time right now. What can Starbucks do about that? What makes sense for you as a business? Yeah. Well, you know, we've been, we've been focused on something called cafe practices for 20 years now, and it stands for coffee and farmer equity. And cafe practices means we are investing to make coffee the first sustainable agricultural product. So it starts with our agronomists who do research around uh, creating hybrid coffee trees that are rust resistant, farmer support centers that share best practices, uh, and we do that around the world. In addition, we have traceability of all the funds to make sure when we buy coffee that that money shows up at the coffee farmer. Now, the seed price, as you mentioned, is pretty low right now, and it's, it's putting a lot of pressure on many farmers. It's important to note that because of the premium Arabica coffee that we purchase, we pay well above the seed price. And this year, even paying above the seed price, we recognize that there are a number of coffee farmers that are, that are uh, distressed. And so we went back and put another $20 million of investment for what we called second payments. 
So, you know, we, we partner with Conservation International on cafe practices. We pay a premium for coffee. And when coffee farmers are, are in, a, in a challenging situation as they are now, we put more of our resources uh, in the form of second payments to take care of them. Let's talk about how you grow your business. Yeah. Uh, start in the United States, which obviously is a large part of your business. Uh, how do you grow Starbucks from here on out? Is it more stores? Is it fewer stores? Is it different stores? Is it different products? Well, it's, it's two things. You know, number one, we, we guide in our long-term uh, growth at scale model says we're going to grow uh, same-store comparable sales 3 to 4% in the U.S., and we're going to continue to build, you know, roughly 400 net new stores a year in the U.S. Uh, so when you add those two together and, you, you know, you look at it globally, we're going to build roughly two, a little more than 2,000 net new stores a year around the world and growing our global same store, uh, same store comps in the 3 to 4% range. And that adds up to, you know, a 7 to 9% top-line growth and 8 to 10% growth in operating income and dub- double-digit earnings per share. For Bloomberg Radio and television audience around the world, we're talking with Kevin Johnson, the CEO of Starbucks. When you talk about more stores to open in the United States, uh, are there particular locales that make more sense for you? There's some talk that it tends to be a little bit more rural than urban for you at this point. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say rural, but it's, it's fair to say that we have higher penetration of Starbucks stores on the East Coast and the West Coast cities. And so that leaves, you know, much of middle America, you know, and, and uh, you know, we've been, uh, we've been using data analytics to help us really understand and see where we have, uh, you know, under penetration and opportunity to build more stores. That's helping us be more focused and more disciplined about where we're building new stores. And as a result, we're seeing great response to the new stores we build. Uh, so much of them are through the Sun Belt, where we still have a significant amount of uh, opportunity to build new stores. But, you know, we're pretty confident that the U.S. is, is you know, still one of our top two growth markets, both in terms of same-store comparable as well as new store growth. So talk about same-store comparable. Uh, how much of that will be because of different products? We now have nitro cold brew, brew yeah. for example. There are other things that appear to be on the drawing board. How much will be different products? And particularly, is it coffee? Because one of the things you say in your letter is you're really rededicating yourself to coffee. Yeah. Well, you think about the, the core platforms we have, our espresso platforms, uh, brewed coffee, uh, our refreshers, our tea, Tivana platform, as well as blended. You know, over the last year or so, we've put more emphasis on beverage innovation around our core platforms. So you, th- you see things like cloud macchiato. In fact, most of our growth is coming from cold beverages, cold iced espresso beverages, cold brew, nitro cold brew, as well as our refreshers and uh, and Tivana. So by innovating around our core beverage platforms of coffee and tea, uh, you know, we are driving growth. And a lot of that growth around cold beverage is coming from millennials and younger generations. When you came in, uh, you made some structural changes in Starbucks. Tivana, you mentioned, for example, mm-hmm. took it from something that was a separate entity and brought it into the stores. As you look out there and look at growth in the United States or otherwise, do you see other structural opportunities, places you'd like to be you're not or actually you're just not sure are contributing as much as they, they should? Well, you know, we've, we've been on a journey to streamline the company. And in many ways, that, you know, that started by recognizing that, you know, we are a branded house. We're not a house of brands. And, you know, Tivana was a great example. We had roughly 300 Tivana mall-based stores 
that were struggling to grow, yet at the same time we were selling over one and a half billion dollars of Tivana in Starbucks stores. So it just made sense. We're going we're gonna to bring Tivana to life in Starbucks stores, and so we, we closed those Tivana uh, mall stores, and by putting our energy into the Starbucks brand around coffee, teas, refreshers, and really a beverage-first platform, uh, it is it is driving our growth, and so you'll see. You know, we will amplify our beverage innovation around those core platforms, and we'll do it around the Starbucks uh, experience that we create in those stores. We can order up Starbucks now online and go and just pick it up at, at the local Starbucks. Are we going to have drive-ups? Well, you know, many of the stores we're building throughout Middle America have they're a cafe with a drive-through attached. And you know that tends to be a very uh, high volume store because it serves the needs of customers who want to come and sit and enjoy the third place experience, and it also serves the needs state of convenience for customers that want to go through drive-through and, and get the, place their order and pick up their beverage and go. You know, in addition to drive-throughs, we've you know with mobile order and pay, you know we're now at 16 percent I think of all our customer occasions are or ordered on the mobile app and picked up in our stores. Uh, we just launched delivery in the United States, and it's early days. Uh, we're doing it. Starbucks delivers in partnership with Uber Eats, and so you know we, you know, we think that we are complementing the third place experience with these other need states. We are, and we're doing it in a way that we believe does not sacrifice or damage that third place experience. We're going to stay true to creating, you know, a warm, welcoming environment in our stores where customers can connect and uh, enjoy their coffee and their teas. For our Bloomberg Radio and television audience worldwide, we're speaking with Kevin Johnson. He is the CEO of Starbucks. Let's go to another big area of growth for you, which is China. Yeah. Still growing 15, what, a store every 15 hours? Yeah, we're still, you know, we're building roughly 600 net new stores a year. So we're opening a new Starbucks in China uh, on average every 15 hours. And in addition, we're growing same store comparables in, in the 4,000 stores that we already have. Uh, through our China digital partnership with Alibaba, we just uh, we've just now uh, deployed uh, Starbucks Delivers uh, in partnership with Alibaba. We now have uh, launched the loyalty program and mobile order and pay. So you know we continue to see uh, very strong growth and, and candidly, you know, China is is a huge platform and you know we can build new stores and grow you know for, for the rest of my lifetime. In China, it is that big of an opportunity. Starbucks has been in China for what 20 years now, something like that. Yeah, I was uh, I was in Beijing two, three months ago, celebrating the 20th anniversary of Starbucks entering China. And in that 20 years, uh, you know, we've 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 built Starbucks in China for China, and that means we have a complete beverage and food R&D team. Our store uh, design teams are based in China. Supply chain is based in China. The digital team is based in China. So they've brought the Starbucks brand to life in a way that is relevant to the Chinese uh, consumer and pays respect to the Chinese culture. To what extent does that put Starbucks in a different position than other U.S. companies doing business in China, particularly as we're seeing this U.S.-China trade war, which doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon? Does that at all put a damper on your growth plans in China? Well, you know, we're in 80 markets around the world, and so we deal with geopolitical situations all the time. You know, in the case of the trade dialogue between the U.S. and China, you know, that has had no material impact on our business. You know, clearly we, we, we hire, we employ roughly 55,000 Starbucks partners in China who proudly wear the green apron. When we build stores, we hire, you know, local Chinese craftsmen who, who build these beautiful stores. 
Uh, and so, you know, you know, thus far we've, you know, we've not seen any material impact from the geopolitical situation. But that said, you know, I always say we're not immune. Uh, but thus far, I think we've navigated it quite well. As you look out, at what point will Starbucks get greater revenue from China than from the United States? Well, you know, what in the United States, we're, we're roughly at 16, 17,000 stores. We're at 4,000 stores in China. And so, you know, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a, a long time. But that said, you know, the two, the, the power of those two growth engines, the U.S. and China, for our specialty coffee retail business are significant. But keep in mind, we also complement that with the Global Coffee Alliance we have with Nestle. And so, you know, Nestle just announced in, with the Global Coffee Alliance, we now have brought our coffees to CPG and food services and single-serve platforms in China. Uh, in that partnership with Nestle, we've expanded to 16 new markets, uh, you know, over the last six months. And, you know, we've got plans now to continue to expand. So I think we've got, we've got some really good growth engines for the long term, and that's what's really fueled the growth at scale agenda. Starbucks is truly a multinational company. We had President Trump recently uh, say that he ordered U.S. companies not to do business in China anymore. Put that to one side. Is Starbucks at this point an American company or is it a global company? How do you think of it? How does it think of itself? Well, let me think, let me just describe it through the experience we create in our stores. And if you start with our mission statement, our mission statement is to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. Now, you think about inspiring and nurture the human spirit, it's all about the human experience. And that human experience is something we all share on this planet. And in many ways, that's why I think the Starbucks brand resonates in every market that we serve. How much planning has gone into this uh, extraordinary meeting? 12,000 people, I'll repeat it again because it's pretty extraordinary. How much work has gone into this, Kevin? Well, you know, we've, we've hosted these in the past. The last, uh, the, I think we, we had one in New Orleans about 11 years ago. Uh, probably Houston about seven years ago, five years ago, we had a smaller one in Seattle. So we've learned from those, and clearly a lot of planning. You know, it's it's you know it's you know a year year or so in the works to host 12,000 Starbucks partners uh, here in Chicago, and uh, you know we we call this a leadership experience because I believe it's through shared experiences that we build common language, we uh, align around a common understanding, and we unite behind a common mission. And so that's what we're doing. We're sharing an experience with 12,000 Starbucks partners here in Chicago, and it's fantastic. And you're just getting started. Good luck over the next three days. Thank you, David. Good. For Bloomberg's radio and television audience worldwide, we've been talking with Kevin Johnson. He's the CEO of Starbucks. Back to you. And thanks so much, David. That was David Weston in Chicago in conversation with Kevin Johnson, the CEO of Starbucks. And, you know, one of the things that he brought up, Carol, was this notion of the third place. We've been talking so much about this, you know, over the years. Sometimes it's fitness. Right. You know, we've talked about it mm -hmm. in that context. Starbucks clearly redefining that. We were talking off air about some of the things they're doing here in New York City. Uh, very interesting. Starbucks always a company to watch. So many industries, as we know, uh, we talk about this a lot at Bloomberg, going through evolutions from automobiles, academia, to media and medicine, so much more. Recognizing, though, inflection points in your business are key to not falling behind. It's the subject of a new book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Back with us is the author of several business books, Rita Gunther McGrath. She's associate professor at Columbia Business School, based right here, of course, in good old New York City. Uh, she's joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, 
along with the editor of Business Week magazine, Joel Weber. And we just want to kind of do a shameless plug because we're going to be at the Columbia Business School next week um, talking to uh, some of their big alum, professors, the dean. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I was up there today, actually, taking business analytics. Uh, How'd that go? Li- linear regression. <laughs> I am all up to speed on linear regression. Um, do not quiz me. I, lo- I love it. Actually, Joel and I were uh, talking right when he got back, and he said he just let it wash over him, which yeah. I thought was a really uh, good description. So, Rita McGrath, great to have you back with us. Congratulations on the book. It is freshly out. You launched it actually from Helsinki? From Helsinki, indeed. Tell us us how that happened. We had a live uh, book launch at my hosts, which was KPMG based in Helsinki. And I had scheduled to be there long before we knew what the publication date was of the book. But since I have such a global audience, I thought, why not? So we did it 4.30 Helsinki time, which was 9.30 New York time. So for a lot of my readers, it was one of the first things they did when they got back from the holiday. So cool. So tell us about the premise of your book, because so many things are changing and being ahead of the curve is kind of key to maintaining your advantage, I feel like, in the world of business right now. I think the core idea behind the book is that what feels like an overnight inflection point has actually been bubbling up for a long time. And if you buy that premise, then if you're paying attention to the weak signals and you can see it early, it takes your business to new heights. Um, And of course, if you don't see them, it goes the other way. So whet my appetite, Rita. What, what's a way that those weak signals, how, how do you spot them? Well, you have to look for what I call leading indicators, which are early signs that something's about to change. Uh, so, you know, in your world, certainly we're seeing a lot of conversation about changing the way investors are valued, you know, as, as stakeholders of a company in favor of perhaps more types of stakeholders being equally important. That to me is an early warning. Now, it's not a prediction. It just tells you hmm, something's different. Mm-hmm. One of the great case studies you have in this book, and you touch on it a number of times, is Netflix. And I feel like we talk a ton about that company in so many different aspects. Take us a level deeper from where we usually go and help us understand how this fits into the premise of the book. So the Netflix story is interesting because the shift in modality from buying your video content on a cassette to it being available on a DVD was actually the single biggest factor that made Netflix even possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, People probably forgotten now, but the old cassettes were really expensive. I mean, you could spend 60 or $70 on one. And so the whole rental of video premise was that they were going to be really expensive. Well, as things went digital, costs dropped dramatically. You could put them in a greeting card envelope and hence was born Netflix. So that was one thing that triggered the inflection point. The other thing had to do with the business models of content providers. Back in the day, they had a series of things that they made money on. So the first thing was the movie was in theaters, and then the movie was you know released, and then the movie was allowed on TV, et cetera, et cetera. But the old backlog didn't really have much of an audience. Right. And so Netflix came along and said, hey, we will pay you guys a new revenue stream for content that you weren't doing anything with anyway. And I think now they kind of regret that they let that cat out of the bag, but that's where they got started. And, you know, you think about the implications of the Netflixes of the world, like Disney is now very much finally waking up to how disruptive uh, the Netflix model ultimately was. So when when you talk about that in here, like what would the, the weak signal for Disney, what, what, what was that weak signal? Great question. The Back in the day or now? Yeah. Oh, well, well, both back- actually, but... Um, To me, the weak signal is always when someone gets closer to your customers than you are, 
for whatever reason. That's always something to really watch. And so, as an example, today what we're seeing is the direct-to-consumer companies, so companies like Dollar Shave Club and Harry's and those guys, mm-hmm. going straight to consumers, completely going around the retail channels that you used to buy shaving equipment from. And that's another one where Until you the could Jeff, see that. Gillettes of the world show up with trucks full of cash and say, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you off the market now. <laughs> Which is you know what Amazon does, right? But talk to me, too, about like the sharing economy, because I feel like that has taken off you know, so much faster than everybody expected. And Uber really showed us how easily we could do that by, you know, kind of easy access to vehicles. But it goes even further from clothes to cars to you name it. So one of the things I talk about both in this book and in my previous one is we're living in a world today where you can access assets without owning them. And it started with hard things to access like computer power, you know, but today, I mean, you want jeans on a rental basis, we can do that. You want furniture on a rental basis, we can do that. So you're able now to really make markets where markets never existed before. And that's now cutting across the whole economy. Can I just shameless plug again, but we talked with the head of Porsche in North America, and Porsche has a sharing, you know, club where you can pay a monthly fee, mm-hmm. drive, you know, go back and forth with any kind of car you want to drive. Uh, so everybody's kind of tapping into yeah, it. Yeah, you just have to, you know, put your credit card on it and not right. look at how much that <laughs> fee is. But there is that. Yeah. So, so Rita, say I'm a business leader and I, I get a sense of these weak signals. I know someone's getting closer to my customer than I want. What in in your book? What, what are the what are the actionable things that people can do? To, to actually like not miss that moment and become you know the case study that you don't want to be. I think the first thing is you really need to be there and you need to be where I call at the edges of the organization. And the phrase to remember that is snow melts from the edges. It doesn't sort of present itself in the conference room, you know, at headquarters. So you really want to be listening. um, And the phrases you want to listen for are things like, uh, you know, a competitive offering is good enough or I'm not willing to pay the premium anymore. Oh, or, oh, you know, I'm going to spend my money on cell phone minutes and not on clothing. You know, Mm -hmm. those are the kind of trade-offs you want to understand about when, when you look at how your customers making decisions when you think about uh, you know all the research you did what was an industry or a name that sort of surprised you enough to be included you know netflix seems like one that you probably saw and you're like yeah i'm gonna do that one but what was something that sort of surprised you enough to to include well, there were two, actually, um, uh, or maybe even three. So one is this German metals producer uh, called Klockner that is busy completely revolutionizing the antiquated way we sell steel mm-hmm. and buy steel. That's one. Uh, another one was the hearing aid business. I mean, I didn't know until looking into it that hearing aids are this monopoly. Yeah. You know, there's like six producers that create them. And it's we protected by business government. We did a great story. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Bill, you were ahead of the curve. Um, and the third one is actually Caterpillar and some of the work that they're doing in the world of branded pharmaceuticals. Um, they, out of all the companies like that I've looked at, have really figured out a way to bend the cost curve on the drugs that they provide for their employees. Wow. Really interesting. The book is Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. That's the key part, before they happen. Rita McGrath, the book is just freshly out as of Tuesday. Congratulations. Literally holding a copy. Yeah. I'm going to get autographed right now. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Really a provocative read in many ways. And as we said, we will be on campus, on Rita's campus, on Tuesday, September 10th. A whole host of professors, deans, alumni... Maybe even Joel Weber. How did Weber get the uh, hard copy? 
You know, I've got people. He's got people. He's the editor of the magazine, bro. (laughs) That was a great conversation. Thinking about that one for a long time. All right. We are going to check on the markets for you just around the bend. We are seeing equities just off their highs of the the session. And coming up, we're going to get a check on the bond market, specifically some economic news ahead of tomorrow's closely watched jobs report. This is Bloomberg Radio. Stands on air at Bloomberg Radio and TV, the special double issue of the magazine, all about the elements. The periodic table, yep, it's been around for 150 years. And get this, there are still some elements out there still to be discovered. But the question is, Jason, is it worth it? Right. It is a big question. It's one of the big questions, I feel like, within this special elements issue. So let's get into that. The writer of this story, Samantha Subramanian, joins us from Cambridge, England, uh, contributed to this special double issue. And Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, back with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. So, Samantha, I want to start with you. Help us understand this because making new elements, that seems like sort of the ultimate flex, as they say, on a 150-year-old periodic table. How does this even work? It does sound like the ultimate flex, except it's been going on for decades. Uh, <laughs> the first artificially made element was made at Berkeley uh, decades ago. And they've been doing it ever since. The essential principle is that you smash together two atoms of lighter elements, and somehow at those high energies and velocities, you combine them to create a heavier element that sometimes lasts only a fraction of a second, but just about long enough for us to detect what kind of element it is and where it goes on the periodic table. And because of that, Samantha, we've we've actually been able to you know expand the periodic table. How, how many elements are synthetic? Do you remember? Well, right now we go up to 118, and, uh, you know, there's like at least a couple of dozen that are synthetic. Uh, everything about 93 is completely synthetic. And, and when you think about where, um, you know, Berkeley really fits into this, uh, which is, you know, we've, you found a character at Berkeley who's like the head scientist running the the uh, particle accelerator where they where you need to do this. One of the things that you discovered is that, you know, effectively to find new elements, you have to have pay for a really expensive electrical bill. <laughs> how, how expensive are we talking? Well, I mean, um, just to give you an example, there was a scientist, a team of scientists in Japan that produced uh, an element called nihonium a few years ago. Uh, they must have run about 200 days worth of experiments spread over nine years. And the total cost of just a bill, uh, just a bill to run the particle accelerator alone and the staff to work it was around $3 million. Now, you know, that sounds like a drop in the budget compared to the uh, to the larger budgets of uh, these big universities and institutions and so on. But it's a lot of money. It has to be raised. It has to be funded through grants. Um, and it's not always possible to do that. And that's actually changed uh, what's happening in in academia, really, because it does, there's no real incentive uh, to go searching for elements. So, so how has that changed? What are, what are the people in this space doing instead? Well, so for a long time, the argument was that as pure research, these kind of experiments still have value. They teach us about the periodic table. They teach us about chemistry, about the structure of atoms, and so on. Um, but the practical truth of it is that for many years, uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, some of these synthetic elements started to find, you know, users out there in industry and so that you could subsidize your experiments from from those applications that would eventually 
uh, take root. But increasingly, these elements last for such a short fraction of time uh, that industries can't really make use of these elements in any meaningful way yet. And so we have to sort of seed ground to the practical realities of science. I mean, there's a limited amount of money, a limited amount of resources, human capital, and they all have to be sort of juggled uh, to do fundamental research as well as research that sort of has application in industry. And so I think that balance is now slowly starting to shift as it looks harder and harder to go beyond uh, 118. I mean, theorists say that you could get to 119, 120, but beyond that, it's sort of anyone's guess, which means it's anyone's guess as to how long these experiments will continue. Well, and it is amazing, as you say, the cost, the uh, you know, the manpower, the person power, as well as just the infrastructure. I mean, I love this line, uh, you know, talking about this tour that you took. She led me through, I'm quoting here, 10 foot thick concrete walls into the steampunk steampunk, excuse me, Heart of the Cyclotron, which I think is the name of uh, Joel's new novel, but I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> it, garage it, band. Yeah, it, it sounds great. Um, you know, Samantha, the, the, the other question that, I, and I, you know, this was one of the, the, the reasons that I thought that this was such a perfect culmination of this issue that we did, the, the elements, the periodic table of elements, was that even though that the, you know, this particle accelerator that I'm evidently naming my next book off of uh, isn't being used to always search for new elements, it's not like business ha- hasn't found a place to, u- to, to use it, right? So who are the companies that are using it while they're not searching, scientists aren't searching for elements? Well, we got about 30 seconds a month. Well, so we have a number of companies that put satellite, uh, satellites into space, and they test their uh, microchips in this accelerator to see how well they withstand radiation. People like SpaceX, right? Yeah. So yeah. that, to me, Big is names. also really interesting. You know, like, maybe the main use of the periodic table of elements is this buffet dish that business can build off of. Yeah. But, you know, the little accelerators that find new things, business also has uses for those, right. too. Yeah. Exactly. Really thought-provoking story. Samantha Subramanian is a freelance writer for Bloomberg. He joined us on the phone from Cambridge, England. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He was here with us for a double shot in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Coming up... Talk a little Apple. Well, it is among our most read stories. Uh, Apple working on something. Not going to tell you yet. You got to stick around to find out exactly what it is. That's how you do a tease, Jason Kelly. Oh, thanks for the class. <laughs> You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. It's not only chemistry class that we do here. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Rebecca Felton is here with us, Senior Portfolio Manager for Riverfront Investment Group, based down in Richmond, Virginia. I assume the river we're talking about, I believe we talked about this before, that would be the James River. You're exactly right. Running through uh, downtown Richmond, beautiful city. She's here with us in New York City this afternoon. So tell us about the equity markets right now, because... We've we've had such an interesting, to say the least, couple weeks and a nice positive couple of days. What's the mood out there? Because everybody's back to school, you know, up here much later than I think they went back to school down south. But uh, what are people feeling like now that everybody's back in the groove? Well, 
You would think that this would be a wonderful feeling today, but you have to wonder if this is for real. You Mm -hmm. hope it is, right, this news that we got today on the trade front. Um, But it's certainly been anxious, and with markets at valuations where they are and investors nervous to the downside, it hasn't been an easy, easy couple weeks. Yeah. (laughs) To say the least, right? Right. Uh, The back and forth. But I do wonder, you know, um, without the trade war – where would we be in the equity markets? How much of what we're seeing? Because, you know, I feel like prior to it, a lot of folks are saying, boy, we've had such a run-up, uh, big bounce off of those December lows. There's a lot of talk about, you know, you can't find value in the market. Valuations had run up so much. So I do wonder, how much do you see as trade problems? How much do you see as we were get, getting overpriced. Well, I think I think that's a great question. I mean, you figure if you if you just forget about the trade situation for a minute and you look at the underlying growth, X that, it had decelerated year over year versus you know, nineteen versus eighteen, right? Um, but nonetheless, we still had revenue growth pretty much holding strong. And what you were seeing was margin compression because wage prices were going up. Folks were seeing the impacts of tariffs. And you were also seeing, you know, CEO confidence waning because they were, you know, projecting forward with maybe mm-hmm. lower CapEx, lower sales expectations, and that sort of thing. So we had health and we had growth. It was all just a little slower and muted versus last year. And we're of the belief that slow is better than no growth, right? Mm-hmm. And that that can it's not perhaps, a recession. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Technically. And so that, that perhaps that can, you know, prolong this expansion a bit longer. Um, certainly, valuations are rich, but we still have better growth here in the U.S. than we have elsewhere. Right. So that's probably can, can keep this going. One of the things you pointed out in some notes that you shared with us before you joined us, and I love this. This is one of my favorite sayings that instead of leaving the party, just start drinking water. Um, That you've been in sort of this drinking the water mode for a while. Uh, Help us understand what you mean by that and what that looks like as you put that into practice from an investing standpoint. Right. Yeah. I mean, Basically, the most important piece of it is knowing your exposures. Mm-hmm. We, we have ETFs in our portfolios, and you know what you have underneath the surface on those is very important. So you have to understand what the factors are that are really driving your performance day in, day out, up and down. So we've definitely made sure we know where our bets are. Um, we have reduced exposures in areas such as small cap, for example. We, we sold those this week. We did a risk management trade out of small caps. And in our shorter horizon portfolios, we added back some dividend-oriented equities and even utilities admitted that they were expensive, right? And then in the longer horizon portfolios, we've put some money to work in, again, selling small caps, and then we uh, put some money to work further in technology, mm. specifically software services, and then um, also consumer discretionary. So we like the consumer. We like yeah. technology. Again, they're richly priced. Can't say that they're cheap, but I think you have to be willing to pay up for growth in this area. Why software services right now? Uh, you've got better recurring revenues there than, say, in a semiconductor. If you yeah. look at it where we were a year ago when the trade concerns were really at the forefront first, yeah. uh, that, that was the space that got hit the worst just because of the sensitivity um, uh, to the China Chinese revenues and that sort of thing. So we've, we've shifted away from the semiconductors and into software services because just the recurring revenue. Right. Right. And solid growth. I find it interesting about the small cap universe because I do feel like folks have been focusing on that. It's only up about 12%. So it's lagged what we've seen. It's been bouncing around as a, as a group overall. But I do wonder um, how much of that is because you feel like U.S.-China trade is going to get resolved and that you don't need to focus so much on maybe companies that aren't so exposed to the mm-hmm. global markets. Um, 
so I think I'm understanding your question. Did why not? Why did we sell it, or what would how would we view it now? Right? Yeah. Well, you said you paired back, right? We, we actually sold it. We you sold, sold it. So we that's what I'm it. trying to understand yeah. why you sold it. Um, it well, it, again, it was a risk management thing. We have a risk management process where we have to basically admit we were wrong. We bought small caps in January. They ha- and, and it's a trade-off, right? We pulled from large cap in mm-hmm. order to fund that purchase. And so our risk management discipline, you know, suggests that we were wrong and uh, we'd given it as much time as we were willing. And part of our thesis was that they were less exposed overseas. And what we've seen is those earnings have been cut more. The growth rates have come down. They've had margin compression because of uh, inability to pass through costs, mm. and they also don't have as much flexibility to shift their supply chain. Interesting. So they were more impacted than on the surface would you would expect. Be, you know, when you look at it on the f- at first, revenues aren't as exposed, but there is a trickle down effect. That's interesting, right? Because we did yeah. have, I think, I feel like a fair amount of people who were saying and making the case because small caps haven't bounced back as much that if you're looking for you know a better valuation play, that's where you might want to go. And also to kind of protect yourself against the back and forth with U.S. China trade. Well, and, and it, would, it stands to reason. And, and I can't argue that they're a value here. We, we understand that we sold them at probably what is cheap. But our, our portfolios are tilted towards growth, and we just couldn't, couldn't continue to make yeah, that bet. Yeah, understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 30 seconds. What's your biggest worry for the balance of the year? Uh, the consumer. Yeah. Just because, what, 60% plus of GDP? Um, retail numbers, some of them have been great. Um, consumer confidence has been trending to the wrong direction, if you will, but still at historically high levels. Um, obviously, retail sales next week will be important. The Johnson Red Book numbers that came out the other day were good. Yeah. So, um, but we and have the labor to, report tomorrow is going to be important and very important. Whether consumers sure. can, but we have shopping. we have to watch the consumers. So. Yeah, absolutely. Great insights. Great to have you with us here in New York, Rebecca Felton, Thank Senior you. Portfolio Manager, Riverfront Investment Group, based down in Richmond, Virginia, here with us in New York City today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.